Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. You're live. Yes, live, but I should have turned this off so it doesn't chime whenever things hit. Hello, hello, hello again, my friends. It's a new week in a new century in the year 2020. And we are doing our second attempt at a new format for lecturing for Professor Boyer, that's me, here at Virginia Tech, home of the Fighting Hokies. And that new format consists of choosing a theme or a current event that enough students or former students have asked me about to do a several-part podcast on over the course of a single week. So we're going, uh, for this week, we're going to try to podcast tonight, tomorrow and Wednesday, maybe Thursday. Uh, and the topic that a bunch of students hit me up about in the last couple weeks was China. Everybody keeps asking me about China. I mean, China's always uh, uh, in the news. It's a major world power. Some would argue the premier world power at this point. And so there's no shortage of news about China, but it has been in the news in some negative lights a lot here in the last several weeks slash months. And so students hit me up saying, hey, boy, what's this group called the Uyghurs? I heard something about that in China, that that's not good. I heard something about something that happened in Hong Kong. Uh, I heard something about this U.S.-Chinese trade war. So why is China doing all these things that I don't understand what they're all about? And that's when I come in and say, okay. For so many years. Sorry, you, just, you had to go to presentation. So start again. When you would click that, you went no audio. Oh. Yeah. So you just, I don't know, when you were on this. So where'd you... You're on this. I only did it two seconds ago. Yeah, so you're good now. Oh, I see. Starting soon is what I clicked. Sorry, everybody. I'm still learning. I'm still learning okay. Twitch. Okay. So uh, uh, what you missed when it went no audio is that, yeah, lots of folks have been asking me about lots of uh, uh, news stories centered around China uh, in the last week to several months. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about it then. Let's give some background. Let me give you just enough history, maybe even a little physical geography, so that you understand some of these news stories that keep cropping up. And this is part of a greater theme about where is China going as a world leader. Uh, and the title of this is China, Peaceful Rise of China, which is how the Chinese government has been pitching it for over two decades. Or is it that the Chinese threat is coming onto the world stage? Depending on your political affiliation and your background knowledge of history and current events, you might be in one of these two camps already. China's good or China's bad. And when it comes to states, when it comes to politics, when it comes to things that our species gets into, I never really like to couch it in terms of good or bad. Every state, every government, every individual human has different motivations at different periods of their life slash history, and so they behave in different ways. So I want to talk about a lot of these things that have been current events, and I want to give just enough background so that you will understand a little bit deeper uh, what's going on with some of these things in current events. And so... Just to get us going here, and can, can, can you fix this already? It's cropping at the top. Uh, just to get this going, 
I'm going to play Devil's Advocate of... Oh, it just... Okay, maybe it's fine now. Devil's Advocate of... Uh, China is doing awesome as it's the newest world leader. Uh, and I think this also got clipped off when I turned off my own audio. Uh, I've been lecturing about China for over two decades. So I have now seen the span of things that two decades ago when I would do a lecture about China, it was a lecture about this eh, up and coming future power used to be a great power in history, is of no great consequence. I shouldn't say that. Is of not great consequence on the world stage in terms of economics. It's not a particularly big political power player on the world stage. It's, it's an important country, but it's not really affecting things that much. This is 20 years ago. All that, my friends, has gone out the door. Obviously, China is not just a world power at this point 20 years later. But as I started this uh, podcast with, it, by some measures, is the world's premier power already, uh, a position that the United States likes to think that it's had locked down uh, for decades or a century and that it was going to hold that position for another century or infinity. And that is not the case anymore. So when we're thinking about these stories, when you hear things about China, do understand that a uh, whopping 20 years ago, they were not even a major power player in any major world events, really at all. So China is doing awesome as a world leader now, if not the premier world leader. And uh, these are all news stories from the last 24 hours. Uh, China has became the first country to grow its economy since the COVID-19 crisis started. Of course, COVID-19 originated in China, but due to the very successful government actions to contain it, to identify, contain, and deal with it, China is the only country right this second who posted a gain in their economy in the last quarter. And this other little story is that there's a minor outbreak in a, in a Chinese town or Chinese city. And so China's a Qingdao to test 9 million people for this COVID-19 in the next five days. I don't think 9 million people will be tested in America in the next five days. So there's something going on here. That seems like what a powerful big world power can do when it puts its mind to it. China becomes first major economy to recover from COVID pandemic uh, period. China's economy is almost over COVID-19 is this other headline. China's economy plows on as world's only major growth engine. Wow, that's significant. How the heck did they get to that status? China must be awesome. Well, and part of the reason they're awesome is that they've exploded economically in the last, eh, call it 50 years, but certainly the last 20. And they are already putting things into place to not only continue to be one of the world's biggest economies, but to become the world's biggest economy and cement that status for the coming decades slash centuries. Maybe you've heard of something called the China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it's reaching out, it's branching out to connect all the major economies of Asia, Eurasia, uh, and Africa. Building ports uh, 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 for ship trafficking, building roads across Asia, building railroads, building facilities, lending money to lots of different countries in its initiative 
uh, and or lending them money so to help them build stuff to enter to further integrate and interlink all of Eurasia and Africa. This is an interesting phenomenon, by the way. Of course, I'm never going to get to half the stuff I want to talk about tonight because I'm already distracting myself. But isn't this interesting that we are living in Trump America? No judgment. I don't care what your political affiliation is. You can love Donald Trump. You can hate Donald Trump. But I want people to be smart about what's happening in the world. And at the very era where uh, in Trump America where Donald Trump says, I want to make America great again. I don't want to trade with anybody. I want everything to be internal. We're breaking all ties. We're getting out of international organizations. At this very time, China is doing the exact opposite, and they're doing it on steroids. So I uh, again, if you learn nothing else, if you're already getting tired of my a beautiful whiny voice, and you're only going to listen for another five minutes, take this home in your brain China and America are the two biggest economies on planet Earth, and they are on two opposite trajectories. Almost as opposite as you could. If you tried intentionally to go the opposite way of America, that's what China's doing. And they didn't even do it intentionally because China plans for decades in advance, and they were already on this course long before anybody even knew who Donald Trump was in China. So massive belt and road initiative making china great again uh and making china a world power and world leader uh, across multiple continents and this is on the cusp of china lifting 800 million people out of poverty in its uh, last 50 years as it has grown as it has gotten its status back as it has achieved all that it has achieved uh, especially in the last two decades uh, and then China is now becoming a world leader, lending money to other countries. But you know, loans are loans; you got to pay them back. So that's business. But uh, stepping up to do more charitable work. Uh, China stepping up in this other story to stress joint efforts against poverty worldwide, since it's been so successful at not eliminating, but uh, certainly changing the equation of the haves and have-nots in China, uh, raising people, a lot of people, hundreds of millions of people in from poverty into something we'd call the middle class. So China is a leader in many ways, and China's doing awesome things in the world in many ways, but then China is a threat to the world in many ways, some would say. Uh, what story? And these are the stories, by the way, that most students have brought to my doorstep, saying, "What's up with this? I don't understand why they're trying to do this." Uh, maybe you've heard some of these stories uh, bopping around the internet just in the last week. China reportedly increases military in preparation for invasion of Taiwan. In fact, no less than 20 students, former students and current students, hit me up last week saying, Boyer, what's up? It looks like China's getting ready to invade Taiwan. I think China's invading Taiwan. I'm like, no, 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 no. China was doing a war game. This was doing an exercise. It was actually putting out a piece of propaganda to suggest if we were to invade Taiwan, here's how we do it. <laughs> uh, however, in the past, and uh, the past that's not that far uh, long ago, China threatens war over new Taiwan independence proposal. China threatens global security and global health by exploiting natural resources, including the use of coal. China's the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. China threatens retaliation for Trump's web chat and TikTok ban. China has been banning U.S. products in retaliation for the U.S. banning Chinese products. China is one of the biggest, I'm sorry, China is the biggest polluter on planet Earth. And that's just the start. Maybe you've heard about all this chaos and stuff happening in Hong Kong. That China completely went back on its word saying that, oh, no, 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 by the way, 
we're going to allow Hong Kong to be a pseudo-democracy with pseudo-autonomy for the next 50 to 100 years. That was a lie. They just took it back over. Sorry, if you're from China or a China lover, that's fine. But they went back on their word, period. There's no other nice way to say it. You probably heard about protests in Hong Kong. You probably heard about laws which have uh, just in the last month made it pretty much illegal to say anything bad about the Chinese government, to do anything uh, uh, that might be even indicated that you want autonomy back in Hong Kong. So freedom of the press there is pretty much dead, and Hong Kong is being 100% physically absorbed back into China right this second. That's on the agenda right this moment. Then you might have heard again of this military preparedness for invasion of Taiwan. China's military moves targeting Taiwan is more an intimidation factor than an actual invasion, say some military sources. Yes, you have a question already? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got a, got a couple of questions so far. Damn, I haven't even told you enough to ask questions like, about. I haven't even got to slide one yet. This is just the crap I was doing as a prep. But go ahead, what's the question? So the first is, uh, China's producing the most solar, wind, and nuclear power, but it's still building coal power plants. How long until they get their pollution under control? Uh, the question comes uh, fr from YouTube. From Billy YouTube. Billy Bob Hobnob. Billy Bob Hobnob. Dude, that's an awesome screen name. Uh, so, uh, Billy Bob was saying that China simultaneously is one of the biggest investors and producers of clean energy, of renewable resources, of solar and wind. That is true. Uh, the government has put a lot of money into businesses to promote that, to yeah, it's what we call economies of scale. So if you by yourself try to make a, sol a solar panel, it's expensive as hell because you have to do it and get the parts yourself and figure out a way to process it. But if you have the government that gives you a billion dollar loan and your company is going to make a billion solar panels, then you can do it for a lot cheaper. So China has been doing this for uh, uh, years to decades already. They see the writing on the wall. They want to become more energy self-reliant and they are investing in clean energy. Again, if you... <laughs> If you want uh, to choose the opposite path of America, just go look at what China is doing. At the same time, China is the world's biggest polluter. China is the biggest user of coal, of which they have a lot. China is a big user of oil, of which they have none. They have to import it all, which is why they prefer to use coal, which is a dirtier uh, fuel. So, yeah, there, uh, again, that conundrum just with energy is the same conundrum I'm talking about for the next three days. And that China's doing all these great things at all. They're doing all these bad things simultaneously. And the question was, how long till they are off of coal? Uh, that I cannot answer. I have not researched that in depth. But my instinct is, from knowing politics and watching the Chinese government operate for uh, upwards of 30 years, is that they would like to do that sooner rather than later. They're not going to... They're not going to jeopardize economic growth. So that's why they're still building coal plants, because they physically have a lot of coal in their country. By the way, so does the United States. The United States has a ton of coal, but we got past coal because we're like, oh, it's really dirty. It really pollutes. It's environmentally not friendly. It's not good. Uh, and it's energy, but it's not, um, it's not worth the price. It's not worth the price of the environment and health and everything else. China is in that same boat. They have a ton of coal like America, but they're not as completely advanced as America is, so they're still heavily reliant on it. Amer uh, America, by the way, has tons of oil too, so and natural gas, which is cleaner burning. So China is in that process, and I would say just this, this, this is just an instinctual hypothesis on my part. 
they would prefer to get clean as quick as possible. They got a billion and a half people there. They'd like to be self-reliant on energy. Put two and two together there. You don't want to jeopardize the health of your people just for the economy to grow, although lots of countries do, uh, including the United States. So they're on that path, but they're early on on that path, if that makes sense. Can't give you a prediction. They're, they're working it out. I, I actually have confidence that they do want to be energy self-sufficient and that they are looking towards the future, and that's clean energy. By the way, don't start yammering that I'm anti-coal, anti-oil, whatever, new wave hippie. I'm not. I've, I have thought for years that the entire global warming argument was a completely misguided way to try to convince people to get off fossil fuel. I think getting off fossil fuel is way better when you make the argument that it's not healthy for humans to breathe in shit. You know, we can argue about why the globe is warming. Some people are still debating if it is. It is, but you can debate about why it's warming. When you breathe in bad air quality, it's immediate that that's not cool and it's not good and people get lung cancer and it's like, no, we should be pushing for clean energy because of the clean part. Don't trouble me with the global warming part, which we're not even sure you can prove why. I'm not a denier. The globe is getting warmer. But you can make arguments of why is it getting warmer. I've always said get rid of those arguments which uh, uh, pro-coal, pro-dirty uh, 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 energy folks want to hammer. Like, you can't prove this, so it's all baloney. No, it's not baloney. But it's easier to argue, you know what, we shouldn't be polluting our environment to death. We should go for clean, and there's a self-reliance component to your economy. If your economy is entirely based on solar and wind, and you can actually fuel your economy that way, I'm not saying you can't, I would say even nuclear. If you can make all your own energy and it's renewable, man, your economy's going to win. That's just future right there. That's just future. Anyway, sorry I got distracted on that. We're never even going to get to slide two. Yes, next question. This is Eric Ize Frags. Wouldn't, wouldn't going clean slow down China's economic growth? Eric says, wouldn't going clean slow down China's economic growth? Yes, if you tried to do it right this second, which is always the debate going on in the United States right now. In fact, the, the debate of going uh, with clean energy isn't kind of happening in the United States. It's part of this presidential campaign. I try not to pay attention to this presidential campaign, but the Republicans, the Trumpers, uh, the conservatives, they're really hammering the Biden crew and the Democrats saying they're going to they're trying to do this clean energy thing. and It's going to destroy the economy. It's going to destroy the economy. It's going to destroy. Oh, oh the, the, the economy is going to collapse because they're going to try to make things green. Uh, and you can argue both sides, by the way, which I'm great at arguing both sides of everything. Yes, if Joe Biden gets elected and tomorrow the, the Democrats say we're banning oil and coal, Yes, your economy is screwed. I mean, that, that's just common sense. So you can't uh, do things that fast. There are systems in place. The systems in place for most of planet Earth are based on fossil fuels. You can't replace those systems overnight. It's a process, and it's a process that takes time. So the same thing I just said about China is what they're arguing about in the United States, except in the United States, we all like to punch each other in the face instead of actually talking to each other or listening. So... 
if you want to make a, a, a cleaner environment and a cleaner energy source, it takes decades of planning. You have to move people, people's jobs, and whole systems of energy delivery to another type of energy. So it's a much longer term, longer planning situation if you want to go green. I believe that the Democrats, I guess, want at least that planning to start. And the Republicans say, no, it's the end of the world if you do this. Again, I'm not choosing sides. I don't care about American politics. What I want you to learn is that China is long-term thinkers and planners. They can do that because they're not a democracy. Sorry, Chinese people. It's not a democracy. And a lot of Chinese people like that it's not a democracy because their government is just their government. They don't have to worry about elections. They don't have to worry about public opinion. They don't have to worry about getting reelected. So when the Chinese uh, 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 policymakers get together, they look at science. They try to predict future trends. They look at like what will be good for our country 100 years from now. What will be good for our country next year? What will be good for our country in 10 years? What will be good for our country in 100 years? And they don't have to get reelected so they can actually plan and say, okay, we're moving towards green energy and it's going to take some time. So we're still building coal plants and we're still building nuclear plants because we have to have energy so that our economy doesn't collapse. You can't do this thing overnight. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, Eric? Does that make sense to everybody? So Holy shit, sounds like this is just a podcast on energy. I guess we should yeah, just do that. Yes. Yes. So H Trees, uh, welcome back, H Trees. Um, uh, points out that it actually was a story that I reported on on the Good News Friday. Remember a couple of Fridays back, I said, "Hey, uh, let's let's talk about some good news instead of always talking about bad news." And uh, China, in the last month, had said we're going to be uh, uh, carbon neutral, which basically means you're not using fossil fuels or you're countering the use of fossil. You use this many fossil fuels, you plant this many trees. That's carbon neutral. Uh, and so China announced recently that, yes, we're going to be carbon neutral, um, uh, shit, 40 years. And how can the world's biggest economy with a billion and a half people do that? Well, with long-term planning. <laughs> uh, and what was the question again? Is it going to hurt their economy? I forgot what H trees so How can they afford to do it Again, it gets back to politics. Honestly, H Trees and everybody who's listening, I, and I hope there's more than five of you. Welcome, everybody. Um, it's not about affording things. It's about how your government works. And the Chinese government is top down. The top makes the decisions. Everybody else underneath them does it. The United States is a democracy. Every four years, both parties are trying to get your vote, and they're going to tell you anything that you want to hear to get your vote. And then you have one party that wins this year, and then four years later, another party wins, and they change everything. And then four years after that, the, party win the other party wins again, and they change everything again. The United States uh, is a great country. I'm glad I'm here because I value personal freedoms highly. It's not a great country to get stuff done in. The two-party system is not a great system if you want to get things done, especially things that take time. The United States is an impatient country. If you can't have a project that it can be started and finished in four years, nobody wants to do it because you don't know if you're going to be here four years from now. Here is a great example of that, by the way, that's not energy related. Obamacare. 
I don't care about Obamacare. I don't care what you care about Obamacare. But to try to change your healthcare system is a long-term process. And Obama tried to do something, and he was in office eight years, and then the next party that came in has tried to do everything to undo it in four years. And if they go another four years, they will undo it. And so four years after that, you're going to figure out a new system, but that system has to be done in four years because the other side's going to undo it. And you're like, oh, God. Dear mother of Obamacare, how can anything ever get done in a democracy? And it's hard. It's tough. It's not fun. It's messy. People have, are, have opinions. They vote other people in who undo things. That's democracy. It All of its warts and everything else. But we get some great benefits, namely that we have a judicial system and that's fair and I can't be thrown in jail just because the leader of China doesn't personally like me. Uh, and uh, I can make a bunch of money here. And if I pay my money to the uh, taxes to the government, they're not going to mess with me. In another country, you can get rich and the government can come in and say, hey, thanks for all that money. We're taking that now. So, you know... It's a trade-off for the systems. The United States, of course, can afford to go completely green. We're one of the richest countries on planet Earth. We can afford to do it next month if we really wanted to. But you have to have that political will, and you have to have political will over decades. And that's not something that's actually even possible in today's two-party system in America. I actually think we should go to a parliamentary system. But that's me. I'm crazy. Next question. Last one on this topic is Coal Rich Mongolia going to be Tibet 2.0? Um, from Michael on. Uh, from Michael on Facebook says, Is Coal Rich Mongolia going to be Tibet 2.0? I'm assuming by that question you're asking, Is China going to take over Mongolia to get the oil, to get the coal resources? Uh, no, I mean, again, we're speculating here, but China proper has a ton of coal. Uh, and as we've now been pointing out, China proper wants to get away from coal. So I don't think that the reserves and resources of coal in Mongolia would cause China to want to flout international law and invade a country. I, I mean, hell, I don't know. Maybe they'll do it for another reason. But I've actually heard that Mongolia has some, uh, I see the rare earth elements or there's something else they have that China would be very interested in. But China will just buy it from them. China's got the money. They, they don't need... Why would they bother invading and then having to take over this country, with you know, which only has 2 million people in it? Maybe it's up to 3 million. Um, 2 million people in Mongolia. Think about that. There's more people than that in the Beltway. There's like 7 million people in the Beltway of D.C. So why would China want to take over a whole territory and then have to administer it, and then you have protest and uprising and nationalist fervor. So they'll just buy it. If there's something there China wants, they got the money, they'll just buy it. Any other questions? There's something I'm not sure if you want to touch on right now. Okay. This is, Jakob, do you see any possibility China's power can be resolved like the Soviets? Uh, the question from Jakob, did yeah, you say? Jakob Beck. Yakov. Oh, my gosh. Jakob. So a Russian, I hope. Great name. Uh, is there any probability that China's power would somehow be dissolved or fall apart, much like the USSR? No, uh, not any time in the speculative near future that I could see. And I, I can't imagine a historian or futurist that would suggest that China's going anywhere in the next hundred years. To basic, 
Anywhere from 100 years to the end of human history as we know it, China will be a powerful entity. Again, barring nuclear war, which is the end of human history that I just referenced. <laughs> so now the Soviet Union dissolved for lots of political and economic reasons uh, because it was a system that was built by taking over or absorbing lots of different other countries, lots of different uh, other nationalities and ethnicities, under a political umbrella that unraveled economically. Uh, China has been around, and, and by the way, the Soviet experiment started in 1917. It only, it's only 100 years old, and it only made it to 1989. So that was an experiment, many would say doomed to failure from the, uh, its initiation. China's a country that's been around for 5,000 years. Uh, China's an authoritarian country that's been around for 5,000 years. Uh, with sporadic, uh, historical eras of chaos and discord, but China's always China, and China always comes back. So it's a very, the, the Chinese, just because we say they're communist, which they're not, but just because we say it's chi uh, communist China, it in no way, shape, or form has any other similarity to the USSR. I mean, none. None. China was kind of influenced by Soviet ideology. That's it. That's, that's where the parallels end. And speaking of end, let me stop taking questions now and get to slide two. <laughs> Sorry to oh, no, I, I would much rather do this. I, I don't know. And Katie, of course, the ever lovely Katie is fielding all these questions on multiple platforms. So continue to, to uh, uh, ask stuff, but also answer this question right now, too. Is there anybody watching right now who's saying, hey, can you stop answering questions and just get to the lecture? Or the alternative, which is, I really love that he, he answers questions. Tell Katie your opinion right now as I start the lecture again, because we want to tailor this to what the, the people want. I'm here for the people. I'm not even running for office, but I'm here for the people. So whatever you guys want, we can do that. Uh, so by the way, now I got to go back a slide to figure out where the hell I was. This was the intro, by the way. This is the intro to the lecture. I was saying, oh, China's awesome and doing all these awesome things in the world today. Oh, China's a threat to the world. And we talked about all these news stories, talked about Hong Kong, talked about Taiwan being under threat. Uh, and by the way, it was an incident yesterday where the Taiwanese ambassador and the Chinese ambassador at a party in Fiji got into a fist fight that involved a cake and cake was thrown. So the Taiwan thing is one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this talk. And we will spend a whole lecture either tomorrow or Wednesday or Thursday just talking about the Taiwan situation because it is quite important and quite significant. And it's affecting events even in the United States of America with whoever ends up becoming the next president. China's doubling down on its territorial claims across Asia and in the South China Sea, which is taking off a whole lot of countries, including the United States. China-U.S. relations... Uh, are going south in this South China Sea area, pun intended, uh, because the United States keeps selling warships through this South China Sea area that China claims is all of theirs. Uh, another story, danger in the South China Sea, because the Trump administration has dramatically increased the number of show of force missions. Actually, we can't even pick on Trump for that. Obama did it before him. And Southeast Asian countries challenging China over maritime claim. That might be a whole separate lecture as well, because I think that's quite important to understanding in the modern world is this place called the South China Sea. 
Then most of the questions I got from students were about who are these Uyghur people? What I heard something about Uyghur people in China getting persecuted. And yeah, this has been a story that's not hard to find information about in the last two to three years of millions of people being put in detention camps. And if that kind of sounds like the Holocaust, it's because it is kind of like the Holocaust of an ethnic group within China being persecuted by the government and in retraining camps. Again, most Chinese people are fine with this. Other people like us in democracies are troubled by this. So what's going on with this ethnic group called the Uyghurs? And then there's this other country called India that's been in a border skirmish with China that you might have heard tell about in the last month of current events because they've shot at each other uh, somewhere between 30, 40, 50 to 100 soldiers on both the Chinese and Indian sides have been killed in this skirmish. The first time the skirmish broke out about a month and a half ago, they were beating each other to death with clubs because they didn't have guns. Yeah, what the hell is up with that? This is part of a 30 or 40 or 50 year long territorial dispute between China and India, another major world power. So we're going to have to perhaps talk about that in a whole podcast. And then if you kind of step back and look at the rise of China as a whole, some might say it's awesome. Others might say this is problematic for the future of the planet. This story says the India-China rivalry undermines the emergence of a uh, multipolar world. The other headline is a distracted U.S. is dangerous for Taiwan because war is likely to break out there. And even another headline there that says America fears China will become the next global leader. Sorry, I'm going to go ahead and interject one last thing here. China already is the global leader right now. The United States is retracting from uh, global leadership. Again, don't care about politics. Don't care if you love Trump. Don't care if you hate Trump. This isn't about Trump. It's about his administration who has made it quite clear that they do not want the United States being a world leader, except in very specific circumstances that they believe are good uh, policy for America, namely the whole South China Sea thing I was just talking about. So like it, love it, hate it, doesn't matter to me. China is working overtime to become the premier world leader. The United States is retracting from a, that role that it's had for at least 60 years. So let's get to this now. Okay. How do I understand, how do I put the, all of these things in context so that I un, better understand the world, uh, China's role in it, and why some people think it's a good thing and other people think it's a bad thing? And indeed, that all of these things that we're going to talk about, Chinese history, ancient Chinese history, uh, will better help you understand what the United States is even doing in today's world when it comes to its China policy, Okay. Uh, uh, and actually I wasn't supposed to show that one. Jump to the next slide. East Asia is the name of the region if you took world regional geography. Uh, but the centerpiece powerhouse country in that is a China. When I think of East Asia as a region, I usually include the Koreas, sometimes Mongolia, sometimes parts of Southeast Asia. But China is the giant power right in the middle of it. And so here are a bunch of things I think you need to understand, to know, to understand China's role in today's world, how it got to this point, and where it's likely to go. And I thought I was going to get to at least thing three, but I see I've already been talking for 40 minutes, and I'm just now getting to the beginning 
of the podcast. Um, YouTube said, I have three hours free, bro. I'm going to hang out <laughs> Did anybody comment if they prefer Q&A? It's back and forth. Back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same way it was in class. Yeah. It's the same as when I used to teach live. There's a, if people really want to hear about the Uyghurs and your take on that. Okay, well, that's going to be a whole separate podcast okay. for sure then. You know what? I can get to the Uyghurs thing right now. There's some, I have a question that's kind of about turkey, so that's like kind of not on topic. Um, okay. Yeah. You can give it to me if you want. Okay. Well, if uh, most people are asking about the Uyghur situation, that's good because I think I can actually get to that tonight, maybe in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> Famous last words. So uh, thing number one I think you need to know about China to understand its place in the modern world is that there are big differences between East and West. Now, if I was given my normal lecture in class, I, this would be almost a whole sub-lecture. This is a 30-minute lecture right here about the physical world of China. And I don't need to give you all the details, but I do think for those uninitiated who never took my class and just were like, China, what's up with that? Are they threatening or what? You do have to understand some physical geography. And one of the first things is it's a big-ass country. Uh, it's almost identical, almost identical in size to the United States. In fact, depending on what textbook you would look at, uh, many textbooks say that the United States is the third biggest country by square mileage on planet Earth, and China is the fourth biggest. And other textbooks will say China is the third biggest country on planet Earth, and the United States is the fourth. So I don't even, you know, I ain't been out there to measure, so I'm willing to say let's call it a tie. But when you, those of us that live in America or lived mostly in America or currently hang out in America, you know the size of this country. China's that size. <laughs> let's call it a tie. <laughs> uh, and it not only is a big place, but actually... Um, this is a overlay of China on the United States, and it is keeping latitude constant between the two. So China has roughly the same latitudinal range. So if you think about how cold it is in, uh, the, uh, say, upstate New York, that's how kind of cold it is up in northeastern China. How hot does it get down in the Gulf Coast or Florida? That's how hot it gets down in southeastern China. It is a similar place for size and latitude. Uh, now, the other thing I love, oh, this is a map of the terrain. Unlike the United States, which has the Appalachians, not a terribly big rain, mountain range, high points, four to 5,000 feet, easily passable. Then we have the Rocky Mountains, which split the country over in the Midwest. Uh, from the deep west, they're pretty high mountains. That's like, you know, you're looking at like 15, 16,000 foot uh, high peaks, significant range. But then you go over to the West Coast, and the United States has two coasts. China only has one coast. That's something to consider, thinking about how climate and biomes play a role. But if you look at the terrain, China doesn't have a kind of singular mountain range which divides it like the United States does. They have this huge, gigantic Tibetan plateau that starts at 12,000 feet elevation. That's where it starts. And then you put mountains on top of that. So Rocky Mountains, 15, 16, 17,000 feet into the highest peaks. The Tibetan Plateau on average is 12,000. And then they have mountains on top of that. That's why you have Mount Everest as the highest mountain on planet Earth. But even T2s over on the Chinese-Pakistani border. These are This is the highest, biggest area. That big football-shaped brown thing you see in China's north. Uh, I'm sorry, southwestern quadrant. Is a super high-ass place. Uh, and I love this little picture because it's a cross-section. 
Do you, it, 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 sometimes a picture is worth a billion words. So if you look at China's east coast, it's very similar to the east coast of the United States. And then you kind of flanked up with some Appalachian Mountains. But then when you get to the Tibetan Plateau, all bets are off and you're way the hell up there. And the point here is that there's big differences between the eastern side of China and the western side of China. It, as you progress from the coast of China inward, it gets a higher in elevation. It gets drier because most of the interior is uh, a mountain plateau and big desert basins and more extreme. So China, because it's, a, because it's at the same latitude as the United States and we have four seasons uh, in the United States, uh, summer, winter, spring, fall, China has that too, but as you go to the interior, those, those seasons get way more extreme. Way colder in the wintertime, way hotter in the summertime, and the, everything else gets just as extreme as well. So because the latitude is similar to the U.S., so are most of the biomes and the vegetation. And what I mean by that is, again, the eastern coast, the eastern side of China is very similar to the eastern side of the United States, going from north to south. Northwestern uh, China is further north than northwestern United States. We're not counting Alaska, by the way. Alaska's out there, right? <laughs> but the northwestern, uh, I'm sorry, northeastern part of China goes way further north than, say, Maine uh, or upstate New York or uh, Massachusetts. So you get more extremes up there. And it actually goes a little further south than even Florida. So if you think about the eastern United States, you've got, well, it's those are cold winter areas up there in the northeast but it's always like uh, almost tropical climates in the caribbean down to the south yeah china has that same range on the eastern seaboard but now as I, i've already suggested once you start going inward and you're going up in elevation yeah you're getting into more alpine type biomes it gets way colder and way drier and the whole uh northwestern quadrant of china is basically a giant desert uh, the Taklamakan Basin is there. And then the southwestern quadrant is the Tibetan Plateau. Super high mountains and super cold most of the time. So that's what's different. China doesn't have two coasts like the United States does. Things just get more extreme as you go into the interior. And in the United States, we have river systems which connect to the interior of the United States. Mostly uh, the uh, Mississippian whole delta, which connects the interior of the United States and flows uh, south to, uh, north to south, as most things kind of flow in the United States. In China, uh, uh, the rivers are the opposite way. They flow west to east. So those highland areas flow out to the Pacific Ocean, going through the lower, more uh, uh, temperate regions where most of the humans are. So China is also connected to its interior, but in an opposite direction that makes sense. Those river systems, by the way, are some of the richest agricultural lands on planet Earth. The Yellow River system, uh, the Yangtze River, the Xi River, these are areas that flood regularly and used to, in historic times, kill lots of people regularly because of the flooding. But air, the flooding with river systems uh, uh, replenishes sediment and soil and enriches everything on the flood banks and that's where you grow tons and tons of food. So the river systems in China, super important, as all countries are, uh, and flow a different way, and therefore things are connected a different way in China. There's a, Chinese uh, uh, bureaucrats and governments over the centuries and millennia have had to work to get into the interior. 
because it's higher up there and all the rivers are flowing this way, if that makes sense. So China's expansion, as I'm getting ready to get into in just a little bit, has always been that the core is in the east and then they have to work to go west. I mean, if you think about it, the United States did too. Uh, the United States started in the east and then as it got bigger and grew in periods of strength, it took over more and more western territories. Think about that with China as well. You had to, China, the, the Chinese government has to work to exert control over those western areas. Keep that in mind. Actually, it's going to come back for the Uyghur thing in just a minute. Okay. Because of the climate, because of the terrain, we can now understand a lot about where people are in China. This is one of my favorite maps. I've used this map for 23 years in class, and it never gets old. <laughs> I mean, because it's 23 years old, there might be another half dot here and there. But each dot on this map represents 100,000 Chinese people. Each dot, 100,000 Chinese people. So Blacksburg is a half a dot. <laughs> Actually, quarter dot. And what it's showing you is where people are. And if we zoom into China specifically, wowzers. It gives you a very distinct sense that, oh my gosh, yeah, China's this big-ass country, but everybody's in the east for all the reasons I've just talked about. Uh, it's more temperate climates. It's where the action is. The rivers flow into this area. It's the agricultural heartland. It's the historic heartland of China. If you, In fact, those little kind of uh, penis-shaped bulbs going into the interior you see, those red dots, that's the river system. So people hang, around, hang out around rivers because it's rich agricultural land, and it's a, a source of transportation up and down, or, or I should say east to west, uh, to connect the interior of China to the coastline. Uh, and Chinese cities, it's always just cracked me up that we have, if you just actually go out and Googled it right, Googled it right now, we're like, what are the top 20 biggest world cities? Uh, I think this must be a Western bias. But if you go Google, top 20 biggest cities by population, Beijing will probably make the list and probably no other cities in China. And so you say, oh, New York's really big, and LA's really big, and Paris, and Berlin, and blah, blah, blah. And the comedy of this is that the China's population density is so high in its eastern seaboard area that if you chose the top 100 most populous cities on planet Earth, they would all be in China. A small Chinese city on the eastern seaboard has 20 to 30 million people. That's a small one. It's almost impossible because there's so many people packed in such a small area. It's impossible to kind of even quantify what city these people are in, which is why they never make the top 10 or top 20 list of most popular cities. But trust me, you heard it here first. All of the top 20 world's most popular cities are in China. All of them. And 20 or 30 or 100 more cities you never heard of before. So this creates, this is reinforcing the theme I'm trying to teach you right now, which is that there's a distinct divide between east and west uh, for topography and terrain, for hydro, uh, hydrography, river systems, for, pop, for biomes, and put all those three together, and there's a huge eastern-western divide and an urban-rural divide east-west based on all that stuff put together. 
99% of the Chinese population is east of that line drawn right there. And to complete the analogy, it would be the equivalent of drawing a line in the middle of the United States on the Mississippi River and saying 99% of Americans live over here. 99% of Americans live on the East Coast. That's how packed Eastern China is and what a difference it makes to understanding the dynamic of East versus West China. Okay, and I love this to finish too. This is the uh, a 20-year-old NASA satellite imagery of the, uh, the world's uh, lights at night. So compiled satellite imagery. And again, this is 20 years old, so that it would be even brighter if I had an updated image. And you can really, again, just draw a line and be like, oh, okay, well, again, I didn't know much about China, but now I know where everybody is. Uh, they're all over in the east. And you see that. Oh, I'll go back and forth. Look at that. Watch, watch, watch. See the lights? Indicative of development in cities and electricity. See where they are? Oh, oh, and there are the people there. Oh, one more time. Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, that's enough of that. So now you know a little bit about that. Now we get to the Uyghur part. The other thing that I have now glossed over, I want to walk back and exploit and talk about a little bit because this plays into the whole Uyghur situation that you have heard about in current events. And so the last part of talking about Chinese people in general is that they ain't all Chinesey. So when you say, uh, I live in China, that makes you a member of a country called China. And so by default on your passport, you would have a Chinese passport. Chinese is also an ethnicity though. Uh, like saying you're Italian versus German. That's an ethnicity. You're Arab or you're Turkish. That's ethnicity. So China is wildly, overwhelmingly, ethnically Chinese. Let's call them Han Chinese, if it helps you understand it better. So you could say that the major ethnic group of China is Han. Han Chinese is better to say, but Let's just say Han so you don't confuse it. However, there are other ethnic groups in China. They are wildly small minorities, but they are important and distinct minorities if you want to understand what the hell is going on with the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the Mongolians that you hear about in the news. So not, although there's a billion and a half people who live in this country called China, not all of them are ethnically Chinese. And as you now have learned, there's a huge difference between East and West. Categorically, historically, ethnically Han Chinese people are from the East. But they now control a country. I say that they. The Chinese government now controls a country that's twice as big as it used to be a thousand years ago or 2,000 years ago that's absorbed other areas that have had other ethnic groups in them. Namely, the ones that I want to point out here is up in the northwestern quadrant, uh, identified in yellow, are uh, Kazakhs. So they get Kazakhs like Kazakhstan. Yeah, that's the country next door. And the Uyghurs you see in the light brown just south of the Kazakhs. And you see Mongolia lit up here. It's not part of China, but it's in there for uh, uh, to underline the ethnicities in this area. So Mongolians constitute the vast majority of people living in Mongolia. But if you look 
you see a big swath of Mongolians who live in China. They live in a province of China called Inner Mongolia. Go figure. How did they name that? Because it's mostly ethnically Mongolian. And then the big one that you probably have a bumper sticker on your Humvee that says Free Tibet. If you look at the whole Tibetan plateau, it's named, the Tibetan plateau itself is named for the Tibetan people who are ethnically Tibetan, including the Dalai Lama, uh, if you know anything about Buddhism. So look at the map again. We're talking about ethnicity now. Can you still draw the east-west divide and understand that things are very different from one side of China to the other? Question. Uh, someone just mentioned the Manchu ethnic group. It's not mentioned on your map. That is true. And I... Um, so uh, I've taught a class on East Asia in times past. And the Manchus, uh, there was something called the Manchu Dynasty. In fact, the Manchu Dynasty took over and controlled China at one point in history. Not that long ago, by the way. Uh, the Mongolians under Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan, took over all of China and ruled China at one point in history. So the... I, don't, I didn't mean to paint a picture that the Han Chinese have always dominated all of East Asia. They mostly have, though. That's a fair statement. But there have been periods where other ethnic groups have become powerful uh, and taken over even parts of what we consider China proper in today's world. Uh, back to your question. I'm oh, sorry, who asked that question? It's your Jakob. Um, my Russian friend? Yeah, Jakob. Yeah, uh, I actually have taught about this in the past. And I have to go refresh myself. Because the Manchus, there's another name for them. I think the Manchus don't even like being called the Manchus. I think they were called the Yuan Dynasty, Y-U-A-N, back in the day. Yurchins. Jurchins, yeah, like J-I-R-C-H-E-N. Yeah, I, I got it. So I'm old. Sometimes I have to clear the cobwebs. So, yeah, the Jurchin people, I think, actually do consider themselves a different ethnicity and why they're not portrayed on this map or even really referenced that much in modern Chinese history, I don't know. So, and I'm not an ethnographer, so I can't speak to, are they really different? How are they different? Is it a different tribe? Is it a, di a sub-tribe of Han Chinese that just lived, and by the way, for those of you that don't know Chinese history, the Jurchens um, were this ethnic group, again, maybe, I don't know, uh, in the deep northeastern quadrant of China, as you see it listed here, like close to where the North Korean Chinese border is. Uh, and they became powerful at one point in history, I want to say 500 years ago, and uh, rallied troops, built an army, took over China proper, and actually rolled it. Uh, I still like calling them the Manchus because it's just easy to remember and it's fun. Uh, the Manchu dynasty. Uh, better most historians call it the Yuan Dynasty, Y-U-A-N. Everybody can fact check me on this, by the way. I'm doing my best uh, off the top of my head. And so they did rule China uh, proper for a very long time. And I believe the reason that we don't see that much about them is that they must have been, a population-wise, they must be a, a smaller, population-wise, smaller ethnic group in this area. And I can tell you just from the way that uh, the Chinese think and the way that the Chinese portray their own history, uh, the Chinese are very proud people. All peoples are. 
And so they don't like to recall eras where other non-Chinese people were in charge. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not making fun of the Chinese. Every damn ethnic group does this. Nobody ever wants to admit when they lost, especially when they're powerful again. When you're powerful again, you get to rewrite history as you see fit. So the Jurchens don't get a lot of play in Chinese history, and maybe that's why they're not depicted on these maps. Maybe their ethnic group got wiped out or died out. I actually don't know the answer to that, so I'm sorry, Jacob. Uh, and I should, but you can only know so much. I'm not a Chinese historian specialist, but... King Dash or Q-I-N-G Dash? Q-I-N-G. Was I misspoken about Juan? Is it Q-I-N-G, the quig? I don't doubt it. So I'm sorry, you're right. Thank you so much, Jacob. The Yuan Dynasty is actually what the Chinese call the Khans. So when Kublai Khan took over China proper, which really, of course, offended the Chinese people, even to this day, they didn't call it the Khan Dynasty. It was called the Yuan Dynasty. I'm so sorry I misspoke to all of you because, again, I'm trying to recall these things. I haven't lectured about this for quite some time. And it's the Qing dynasty, Q-I-N-G, is the dynasty uh, that the Jurchens reigned over where they took control of China proper. And I believe it was a Qing dynasty that was in charge right up to the modern era uh, when the whole system was thrown out. And by the whole system, I mean having an emperor and all that stuff, which I'll get to that history. Not tonight, obviously. Uh, but yeah, the Jurchens, another different ethnic group. And I'm so glad you brought that up, by the way, because it reminds me of a quote. It's not Shinshir Huandi. It's, uh, oh, oh. it's from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And the uh, it's the opening scenes of the Temple of Doom, which are, I believe are in Shanghai, in the fancy nightclub, if anybody's seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And uh, uh, Indiana Jones is trading a little vase of ashes for a diamond. Does anybody remember this? And in that scene, the Chinese guy holds up the vase when he gets it. And he's like, inside of the remains of the first Jurchen emperor. And I'm like, oh, I know what the hell he's talking about. And then chaos ensues and short round saves Indiana Jones. But now we have digressed once again. We're supposed to be talking about different ethnic groups. Let's get back to that now. And these, I love that I have all my old slideshows that I've built over the course of the last two decades because I love like coming back and being like, oh, look at this story from 2011. I mean, I, could, I wouldn't be able to find that in today's world. But um, it, there has long been animosity and ethnic disturbance between the Tibetans and the Chinese government. And the Chinese government, uh, China, as we know it today, didn't even really take over what we now call Tibet until the Jurchen dynasty, the Qing dynasty. Uh, so about 500 years ago, the Tibet was not classically incorporated as part of China proper, you know, for thousands of years. But it's more it's a more modern thing. And so you have your free Tibet bumper stickers and you know who the Dalai Lama is. That's because that group of folks are not Chinese people. They're Tibetan people who have been incorporated into a Han Chinese dominated society. And every year that has ticked by in the last 50 years, the Chinese government has made Tibet more Han, more Chinesey. By the way, when I've ever said that before in the past, people are like, that's really offensive. You can't say that. I'm like, it's the word Chinese with a Y. It's not offensive. 
if you want to be offended, go for it. Uh, the Tibetans are way more offended, by the way. So <laughs> they, it doesn't matter what you call it. <laughs> the uh, uh, Chinese government's policy has been to move ethnically Han Chinese people into these areas to make them more Han chinese if that makes sense. So the Tibetan issue is one that most Americans have been most familiar with because of the Dalai Lama and Buddhism, and he's cool and won Nobel Peace Prizes and stuff like that. But they, they're not the only ones. The Inner Mongolia is a state of China. It's called Inner Mongolia, uh, and it is mostly Mongolian people. And they have also chafed under Chinese rule, a lot of them, maybe not all of them, uh, and there are days and there are events and there are things that happen where there are protests and there are uprising. Every time a Chinese official or a Chinese military vehicle like is in a hit and run or kills a Mongolian child, which happens, um, there's big trouble and people get really upset and say, hey, we're being dominated by this other ethnic group in a country that we never wanted to be a part of. Uh, and they're not alone either. And now we get to the Uyghurs. I wanted to preface all that so that you understood that, no, this isn't a new thing. This discrimination against the Uyghurs is not new. And it's not the only ethnic group that's been discriminated against in China. Again, I, I would say I should apologize to my Chinese citizen friends who are watching this and Chinese students who are watching this and saying, no, my country's great. It doesn't do anything bad. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Everybody who really loves their country, whether they're in Togo or, or uh, the United States or Argentina, if you really love your country, then you think your country can do no bad and do no wrong. But I am a person of the world, so I don't really, I hold no loyalties to anything, I want to know the truth, and I want you to know the truth and understand what's going on. So these ethnic minorities, uh, uh, and there's more than the uh, Mongolians, there's more than the Tibetans, and there's more than the Uyghurs. This has been a long-term process of incorporating these Western, mostly Western areas into China proper, uh, and in some cases, subduing the population by semi-seedy means. And so the Uyghur thing, again, this is a story from 10 years ago when I gave this lecture. Uh, China's grip on the Xinjiang is the name of the province. Xinjiang is a big-ass province up there uh, in northwestern China. It is mostly desert, desert basin. It's a different biome. Uh, the Silk Road went through it. Uh, but it is predominantly Uyghur ethnicity, and that's a Turkic-based ethnicity, not a Han Chinese-based ethnicity. And they are also Islamic and not followers of other Eastern traditions, which have historically been associated with China proper. So not only are they a different ethnic group, they're a distinct ethnic group and a distinct religion. By the way, one can say the same thing about Tibet. Tibet is a different ethnic group and kind of one of the historic homelands of Buddhism. Well, you shouldn't say historic, more modern, but it's a different group of humans of a different uh, ethnicity, speaking a different language with a different religion. It makes them very different. And it's one of the reasons that China has been pushing to make them not so different and solidify Chinese claims over those territories and those people. Now, again, that story was from 10 years ago. I talked about Hey, China has this war on terror, is concentrated on Xinjiang. For those of you that are too young to remember this, we started this whole war on terrorism about 20 years ago 
when some Islamic radicals from Saudi Arabia and other parts under Osama bin Laden's tutelage blew up uh, the World Trade Center. And uh, we say it's the war on terror, but quite frankly, it's been the war on Islamic terror. Because you don't really hear about too many other terrorist organizations that aren't Islamic that are being attacked. And you can see this action happening in the Middle East. You can see this action happening in America. You can see this action happening in Europe. And China's on board for it, too. And in fact, see if Katie remembers this. I still remember the September 11th attacks. And I still remember vividly that the two there were two countries uh, that immediately said, we're going to help out America right this second. Uh, two countries that immediately agreed with America. America said we were just attacked by Islamic extremists and we, the world, need to stand against Islamic extremism. Can you name the two countries who agreed the quickest with the United States of America's war on terror? I'm going to give it one second so I can sip some wine to see if anybody remembers me lecturing about this in the last 20 years. I just remember it so vividly because it struck me as so odd, but it all makes sense when we get to the next slides. Anyone? Anyone have a clue? Two countries that immediately said, we want to help the United States on its war on terror, aka its war on Islamic terrorism. Any guesses? Any guesses? Any? Oh! Palace goes up in the chat room here on Twitch. Hit it. Knocked it out of the park. China and Russia. China and Russia on day one of the war on terror said, we are all about fighting Islamic extremism. And buddy, they have been at it ever since. Russia's a different lecture. Now we're to China. China immediately said, yes, uh, uh, Islamic terrorism is a problem. They didn't even say terrorism. They said Islamic terrorism is a problem. And where are Islamic people in China? In the Xinjiang region, and they're called Uyghurs. And so now we can fast forward to the modern era, and these are headlines from now. China's repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. More than a million Muslims have been arbitrarily detained in gigantic work camps in China's Xinjiang region. The re-education camps, as the Chinese government calls them, are part of a long-term, now over 20-year crackdown on the Islamic Uyghurs of that part of China. Summary says here, 11 million Uyghurs in that part of the country. And you might say, wow, 11 million Uyghurs, that's hardly a minority. Yes, it is when you consider China's population is 1.5 billion. <laughs> so 11 million isn't that big of a number. Uh, and I think the most important component of this is they are Muslim and they are Turkic-based ethnic group. If any of you actually hung out with me last week, the whole time I was talking about Turkey, and I was saying Turkish people are one Turkic-based ethnic group. We talked about how Azerbaijanis are a Turkic group, and Kazakhs are a Turkic group, and Uyghurs are a Turkic ethnicity. There was a there's a, there's a family, right, of, of Turkic-based ethnicities, and then there's over time and moving around in different countries and hanging out for a while, uh, they become kind of separate. Uyghurs are a Turkic-based group that does have a Muslim identity. Uh, by the way, just to follow up, Turkey is actually made fun of China, or I would say made fun of, come out in protest, 
saying, hey, China, you shouldn't be beaten up and picking on those Uyghurs. And if you watched the whole Turkish podcast last week, you know that's because uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan wants to be seen as a leader of the Turkic peoples and a defender of Muslim peoples worldwide. So he has a very intentional role in doing that, and it plays into what I'm talking about right here with the Uyghurs in northwestern China. Chinese government has imprisoned more than one million people since 2017. Uh, some have been uh, scrutinized to under surveillance, religious restrictions uh, of what they can and cannot do, enforced sterilizations, which was a, a slide I showed a little bit earlier that I recently found about, found out about, and was disgusted by. Uh, yeah, that's uh, again. Sorry to my Chinese citizen friends who are like, "No, my country's great." It's like, sure, okay. Your country's doing a lot of great things, but sterilization of ethnic groups that you don't like? Yeah, I'm not cool with that. That's that's why I said earlier, you know what? Democracy's messy, ugly, inefficient, short-term thinking, but that shit don't happen in democracies. By the way, it did in America, but it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> so that's reasons why different government styles, yeah, they have their pluses and minuses. Uh, and very recently, the United States has sanctioned officials and blacklisted dozens of Chinese agencies linked to these abuses. And these abuses have come out largely because of, dun, da, 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 here's a technology minute for you. No one would know Jack Diddley about this except for these great things called satellite imagery. And so there's been a hell ton of work done by what we call remote sensing peoples in the field of geography. Uh, that use satellite imagery to try to tell stories and understand what's happening on the planet. And tons and tons and tons, much to the chagrin of the Chinese government, tons and tons and tons of pictures have been taken via satellite showing the building of these massive internment camps in Xinjiang. And people start asking, what the hell are this, is the Chinese government doing building these giant warehouses? And you can visually watch... If you have the money and the means and the technology, you can watch what's happening live on planet Earth from a satellite. And so people started looking and saying, why are there hundreds of thousands of people being rounded up in warehouses in Western China? What the hell is this? So the Chinese government didn't want, anyone, didn't want anybody to know about this, but they, they can control information inside of their own country, which is why Chinese citizens don't know anything about this because the Chinese government controls all the news. But because of remote sensing, the world has found out what's going on here. This would have been easy for the Chinese to pull off 100 years ago. Without remote sensing, nobody would have known. There would have been some first-hand accounts of travelers passing through the region, but it would have been very sparse. And people have been like, what? I don't believe that's true. But there's so much documentation of these camps that everybody's like, oh, that is true, because you can prove it and show pictures of it. That's gross. Uh, so, uh, we have a million in turn since 2017. Uh, we listened to a really great podcast not that long ago about how the Chinese government was actually employing geneticists from America and other top researchers in American universities under the guise of that they were doing medical research and doing ethnographic studies and having people come and actually take blood samples from the Uyghurs that they have in these internment camps to find out how much blood purity they had. And again, this is when, from a Western democracy standpoint, you're like, oh, this is gross. 
That's not cool to be getting people's blood so that you can persecute them or label them or somehow put them in a camp or say that they're not citizens. So that actually has been exposed very recently too. So this is some seedy ass stuff going on. And again, it started in haste about three years ago. And there's there's really no nice way to spin this. It's it's not it's not a good thing for the Uyghurs. Uh, 11 million people that are basically being categorized as sub uh, citizens of the country that they happen to be located in. They cannot travel. In fact, most Uyghurs who are abroad, they have to know that if they go back to China, they're going to be in prison. They just have to. They, they, everybody knows. So to go back and see their own families, that, that's kind of off. They can't do that anymore. You can't imagine that the Uyghurs have much freedom of movement. They probably don't have a lot of freedom of speech. Uh, they don't have freedom of religion anymore. So again, China ain't a democracy. They may, the government policy may be, who cares what Boyer's saying? We, we don't have a constitution that says you have freedom of religion. Screw you. This is China. So they're not doing anything bad in their own eyes. They never said you could do it to begin with. And in, I won't say in defense of the Chinese government, but uh, students have asked me, why, what happened? Why did this start? Why are the Chinese government suddenly imprisoning millions of people and cataloging their DNA? And the Chinese government is saying, because of 911, because of Islamic terrorism, we are fighting Islamic terrorism. This is the official line. And to their credit, uh, this started in haste in the last five to 10 years because there are those Uyghurs, some radical Uyghurs, who say, we don't want to be part of China. Uh, we are not Chinese. Uh, we are not, uh, not only are we not Chinese, uh, we're Muslims. Uh, in fact, the area that we're in used to be called East Turkestan. That's a true story. It used to be called East Turkestan 500 years ago. Or actually, no, not even like 100 years ago. Uh, uh, the whole province of Xinjiang only got reabsorbed into China proper like in 1947. So this is a group of people who have the unfortunate circumstance of being a different ethnicity and a different religion, uh, speaking a different language, who got absorbed politically by powers bigger than them, uh, unbeknownst to them. So this used to be East Turkestan, and these Turkic-based peoples who were Islamic suddenly are in China, and some of them over the years and decades have said, we don't want to be part of China. Maybe we want to become back part of Turkmenistan again. Maybe we want to have an independent East Turkestan. Maybe we just want to have uh, more proper rights and uh, privileges as citizens of China. Whatever their arguments are, you can go research that on your own time. Uh, but there have been incidents. There has been some nationalistic style movements uh, that people have said, hey, we want to fight for you know, Uyghur independence. Those get routinely crushed and crushed badly by the Chinese military. Uh, and there have been terrorist attacks. So again, I'm not I'm not trying to say anybody's hands are clean here. The Chinese hands are way dirtier. But there were several knife attacks. This is this is how clamped down the society is. We have terrorist attacks in the United States where people use bombs, people use planes, people use jets, people use submachine guns and go kill lots of people. They don't got none of them things in Xinjiang. So when you hear about a terrorist attack in Xinjiang, it's a dude with a knife running around stabbing people. Which makes it almost more gruesome somehow. It's really, again, I'm not defending uh, uh, Uyghur radicals, 
But the level of violence that they can commit is almost laughable compared to the response that the Chinese military will have against those uh, acts of violence. So there have been acts of violence from Uyghurs in the past, and they are scary. Uh, but then what happens is that the Chinese military sends 100,000 troops and locks down the whole damn place, and nobody can move or go anywhere. And there's been news blackouts. I remember reporting on this in class over the years. All of a sudden, like in 2017, there was a knife attack, and then there was a news blackout for the entire province of Xinjiang. That's like saying um, Texas went dark. Something happened in Texas, and now we have no idea what's going on in Texas. No information goes in. No information comes out. No reporters can go there. That's what the Chinese government has done as a response. Uh, and that, uh, apparently, several of these type attacks have prompted this re-education of Uyghur people. Again, I guess we're going to have to end here. I haven't even got the Chinese history yet. That's what I was supposed to get through tonight. But this is what's going on in this scenario and why the, why the Chinese government has responded in such a way since, again, it's about, about 20 years, that the Chinese government is very against uh, uh, any independence movements or nationalism of any kind. The Chinese government has remained in mortal terror of any of its ethnic minorities getting uppity and trying to free Tibet, let's say. Uh, and so they have been working overtime, especially since 9-11, to put down this particular group of people. And the ways they're doing it is with re-education. And they're, they're telling the world, no, 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 we're not interning these people. We're, they're poor. These are poor, ignorant hicks in Xinjiang. And so we're teaching them. Uh, we're giving them skills to make their lives better. It's a quite nice propaganda story, actually. It's the same story they've been saying in Tibet for actually 100 years, too. So it, it, the government doesn't want to be seen as bad guys, uh, and they probably have been making physical improvements to the Xinjiang province in terms of industrialization and building roads and, and providing jobs. So there's that, but the manner in which they're going about it is very distasteful. Uh, to Westerners, or I shouldn't even say Westerners, to most of the outside world, whether you're a Westerner or an African or a Latin American. I, don't, I think most of the rest of the world's like, ew, we don't, haven't we got past that? You're corralling up an ethnic group and pinning them in like animals and taking their blood? That's not, that's, ew, that's not cool. But the alternative, I guess, is that the Chinese government would just go in and massacre them all. I mean, I mean, it, it, neither scenario was quite, frankly, that good. Uh, and so the Chinese government decides on a course of action with a long-term plan in mind, and they execute it, and that's what they're doing. And I'm sorry, I see a ton, ton of... Uh, uh, kind of to oh, okay, good. Good. Okay, good. I'm glad that uh, uh, Palaskos and Yakov are having a back and forth about even Turkish ethnicities. I like this. This is great. Yeah, but I do like what Yakov said about the, um, uh, or, or actually uh, Palaskos said about uh, pan-Turkism. Pan That's one of the things from last week I should have mentioned, that uh, Recep Erdogan is all about pan-Turkism. He wants to be seen as a leader of the ethnic Turks and, again, a defender of Islam. And that's why he has brought this issue up to the Chinese government. Was there other questions that I missed? Uh, if you want to 
Holy crap, is it really 924 already? They had a question, so I said one at the very beginning, says that the U.S. favored Turkey's expansion over at the expense of Greece because it considers it a strategic counterweight to Russia. Is that an established notion for American strategists? Oh my god, you already lost me. You already lost me. It's too many adjectives. Uh, so he was saying that the, he thinks the Americans favor Greece does, or favor does Turkey. Does the U.S. favor Turkey's expansions over an expensive Greece? Does the U.S. favor Turkey's expansion over Greece's expansion? In no, the, over the, like taking over Greece or at the expense of Greece because it considers it a strategic counterweight to Russia. Like, do they approve Turkey because it's a counterweight to Russia? Perhaps? They used to approve. Yes, I can't answer that very quickly. Uh, uh, yes, the United States has always been a friend and ally to the Turks ever since World War II. And indeed, uh, most European countries, uh, governments have as well because Turkey is a counterweight, a counter-influence to Russian influence within the region. That's all up for grabs now, though. Uh, with, with Turkey's current moves and maybe leaving NATO. Again, this is a very uncertain time for NATO in particular, for Turkey, uh, and what happens if Russia continues to want to expand in this direction, which it obviously was doing when it got involved in the civil war in Syria. So that's yet another podcast that I will try to get to. But back to this, because now I haven't even gotten to the main points I was going to talk about with history. However, I can now at least feel confident and sleep well tonight knowing that you know a little bit about the ethnic issues within China. Let me restress for the 10th time. The vast, vast, vast majority of people who live in the country called China are Han Chinese. Vast number. Let's say 95%. Yeah, plus or minus 2 or 3%. Vast majority. So the fact that you even hear about any of these stories with the ethnic minorities is something in and of itself. It's kind of was kind of amazing. And it's not just the Uyghur thing. The Uyghur one is the most current. It's got the most headlines because it is, again, sorry to my Chinese friends, it is a bit insidious. It's a little scary that, that any country would be doing this in the 21st century, having re-education camps. And part of the re-education camp... Um, uh, push with the Chinese government is, well, we're re-educating them to only think about their religion in proper ways. In other words, we want to make sure that the Islamic people in our country aren't radical Islamic people that want to do uh, bad things. You can take that for what it's worth, but it sounds scary as shit to me. I I'm not even a very religious person, but I don't think you're going to tell any religious person how they're supposed to think that kind of falls under the brainwashing <laughs> category so that's what's been going on with that but it's not the only place uh, as i suggested it's now called hanization uh and uh, you see the han takeover of tibet mongolia and xinjiang continues this has been uh, and hanization is that since china uh, has come into the modern era and you can actually pick the dates 1949 i'll get to it tomorrow when i actually get to some chinese history uh, 1949 is when China became the China you know and recognize in today's world. And at that point, it had it controlled areas of Inner Mongolia, Xinjiang, and the Tibetan Plateau. Places that historically it may or may not have uh, had claim or control over. So in the modern era, one of the ways that the Chinese government has 
sought to exert its control over those areas is not by just sending in the military and busting up people's heads. That happens sometimes. Uh, when there's a free Tibet movement uh, that happens in Tibet, yeah, the, the government will send in the military to crack some heads. Uh, same with Xinjiang. But the more insidious tactic that's happened over the course of the last 50 to 60 years is that you send in actually ethnically Han Chinese people to live in these areas. Meaning, um, say in 1947, this area we call Tibet was probably 90% Tibetan people, maybe 10% Han Chinese people. In today's world, it's probably 70% Han Chinese people and 30% Tibetan people. And this is because it's been a coordinated effort. Again, I'm not making fun of them. I just want you to understand the world. It's a coordinated effort by the Chinese government to say, hey, look, we own Tibet. And I know the outside world thinks that Tibet's for Tibetan people, but over the course of decades, we've encouraged people, uh, given tax breaks, let's say, to Han Chinese business people to go start businesses, uh, had state-run corporations move in and start facilities in Tibet, uh, mining facilities, held manufacturing facilities, and then you move in and you give tax incentives to Han Chinese people to go as workers. So if you, you do this for long enough, you change the equation of the humans who live in the place. So you've had encouragement by the Chinese government for Han Chinese people to move into Tibet, for Han Chinese people to move into Zhejiang, for Han Chinese people to move into Inner Mongolia. And by and large, these are people that are the business owners. Uh, that become the middle and upper classes that kind of control things. And this is part of the friction between the ethnic minorities and the areas that were their historic homelands that used to have no Han Chinese people in it 500 years ago. And now it's run by Han Chinese people. That's part of the reason you're seeing these frictions which pop up from time to time, including Mongolians. This is just from last week. Mongolians rally against China days before uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo visited. Uh, this whole process has been decades in the making, and it's getting to the point that the Chinese government can legitimately claim, what do you mean we should free Tibet? It's mostly Chinese people who live in Tibet. We can't free them. They're Chinese people. They're part of China. You see how that process works? By the way, are the Chinese the only uh, government who's ever done something like that? No. Uh, you, one could argue that the settling of the American West, taking over lands from Native Americans and uh, giving everybody 40 acres and a mule. That was the way the U.S. West was settled by white people. So I'm not casting stones here. Again, I'm just trying to get you to understand what the hell's going on in the modern world. Yeah, you had a person on YouTube from China and says, oh, this is happening, say, yeah, it's like saying free uh, California. That's how it is now. It's not... No, I, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, yeah, it's mostly Chinese people now. It's mostly Han Chinese people. It's always tricky to give a lecture like this because when I say Chinese people, well, every citizen of China is a Chinese citizen, but we're talking ethnicities here. So yeah, there is no free Tibet anymore. It's mostly Han Chinese people. And again, China's not the only one that's ever done this. Uh, the U.S. has done it in the past. Russia's done it in the past. Russia took over its entire country from non-Russian people and then moved Russian people into it. You, one can make the argument that what that's what Israel's doing. If you heard of the settlement issue in Israel, 
Israel took over this area called the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and Israel has encouraged settlement by Israeli people to move into these areas. And now it's saying, hey, look, the West Bank is mostly Israeli people. It's now going to be Israel. So this is a tried and true method over time. I'm not picking on the Chinese government. This is what powerful nations in certain circumstances in historical areas have done. Again, I'm only telling you the story so you understand what the hell these news stories are all about. This is what all the friction's about. I did like this one uh, little part here, and I'm going to end on this because I didn't expect to spend an hour and a half on the intro slides. But I think we made some progress here tonight, people. This is the uh, one that caught my eye right before I came on camera tonight, though. And that is nuclear imperialism in China's Xinjiang province. And this, to me, I, I immediately in my brain made a synapse connection to... It, it's a poverty, uh, um, wealth disparity issue in the United States and most places on planet Earth. And how the hell am I connecting wealth disparity and geographic locations in the United States to this story about nuclear imperialism in China's Xinjiang province? Because governments and even states or even localities will put the nastiest, most terrible things in areas that are impoverished or that they have control over to get them away from the areas that they like. So this is why you have things called the inner city in America, uh, where really toxic industrial uh, businesses start up in the inner city or in the bad part of town because they put businesses are dangerous things in areas, and this is everyone on planet Earth, not the Chinese and not just the Americans. Governments or businesses locate in areas of where poor people are because poor people don't complain. And poor people are expendable. Not really my words, but I'm saying from a business standpoint, you're not going to put your nuclear waste facility in a rich-ass neighborhood in Manhattan. Do you understand why? It's not going to happen because those people say, no, you can't do that here. And they'll fight back and they'll have an environmental movement. And so you cannot put... People in America get furious when you put a prison near a big city. Because they're like, we don't like that. It's scary. We don't like it. I always uh, like, I think it's, it's either George Carlin or Chris Rock made a joke about it one time saying, why do people get so upset about having a prison in their community? They think it's dangerous. If people actually escape from the prison, you think they're hanging out locally? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great joke. Right next door to a prison is the safest place you could ever be. No one's ever going to touch you there. Anyway, some of the most toxic, nastiest in industries and facilities and a lot of the worst environmental disasters you've ever heard of happen in poor areas of planet Earth, period. And I only thought of, I only pulled up this story because it made me think of that trend worldwide, but it further emphasizes what's going on in the Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs. And so what the story is about is that China had no nuclear energy industry 50 years ago. No, it didn't have one. Okay, it was not even a nuclear power. And China has tons of coal and China has tons of other energy resources or access to them. But they've gotten into nuclear energy because it is more green and it's way efficient. You can produce a ton of energy. But you're not going to put nuclear power plants in Beijing. You're not going to put nuclear power plants in uh, 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 Shandong. 
you're not going to put nuclear power plants outside Shanghai. Where are you going to put them? Way the hell outside of urban areas in depressed areas that you kind of don't like anyway. Xinjiang. So I just found this story really fascinating as a, as a way to tie a theme that happens worldwide back into this ethnic friction that's happening within China. By the way, if we went back to that map, of ethnic groups. There's actually a handful uh, or more of other uh, small ethnic groups, especially down in uh, southeast China. So we think of uh, near the border of Vietnam and uh, Burma. There are other small ethnic groups, mostly kind of hill peoples. The populations are so small, they barely make a blip on the map when you're talking about 1.5 billion people in China. But it is not a 100% homogeneous society ethnically. And that's why you have these issues going on. And specifically in Xinjiang, because of Islamic extremism, the war on terror, all the way up to including the obvious, which is China wants to make sure they exert control territorially over these areas that perhaps ethnic groups might want to start an independence movement in or a religious movement in or a nationalistic movement in. So China's been very calculated in making sure that doesn't happen. And they're not the first. They're not the only ones that ever done it. But that, my friends, is why you know about the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and why you've heard about the Tibetans in times past. Almost everybody's, I guess, all but forgotten about Tibet. Everybody's have to free Tibet bumper stickers uh, on their cars. And I'm here to tell you, you can rip them off. Tibet ain't going to be free. There ain't no way. A whole bunch of countries still want Tibet to be free, but... It's mostly Han Chinese people now and under the direct control of the uh, Chinese government. Does that make sense? Hope so. Yes. Cool. So that is the layout of the land and the peeps that live on it. But what are those peeps all about? What is it to be Chinese? What is Chinese culture? This is where I was supposed to start about an hour and a half ago. But we got to one of the issues. So now start tomorrow. I will do as brief as possible which is impossible. I'm going to try to do 5,000 years of Chinese history in 10 minutes so that we can get to the Hong Kong and Taiwan issues and maybe even Tibet, but you kind of understand that. But I really want to get to the Taiwan issue since there was all this brouhaha that China was supposedly getting ready to invade them last week. So tomorrow, let's just go ahead and put it on the calendar. 5,000 years of Chinese history. And then 10 minutes of Taiwan history. I I try. I try. I I have good intentions. <laughs> yes, so I won't go into any more new information right now. I will answer whatever questions that you all have and then we'll talk Taiwan tomorrow. Talk Taiwan tomorrow. I like that. That's the name of the talk tomorrow. Talk Taiwan tomorrow. Okay, what do we have in the uh, chat room here? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I probably will skip a lot of stuff about Turkey since that's a different one. East Turkmenistan was actually funded by the Soviets at first and forced by the Soviets to be absorbed back into China. That's interesting, Yakob. I've not heard that. Uh, let's see. Canada 2. Uh, one last maybe dumb question from Yakob. Uh, is India on a trajectory to be a powerhouse on par slash rivals with China? Uh, I would say, no, it's not a dumb question at all, Jakob. In fact, most futurists and all political scientists are looking at this issue every single day. The rivalry between India and China that 
has become even more evident with the border skirmish that broke out again about a month and a half ago. That border skirmish has happened multiple times since 1947. That border skirmish is in the highland, most remote-ass, mountainous, not-jack-shit-nothing-there regions of planet Earth, and yet two different significant powers on planet Earth are willing to go to blows over it. So maybe that whole Chinese-Indian rivalry will be day three of our podcast, or day four. Maybe this is going to be a whole wing of podcasts because we have so many good issues to talk about. But to answer your question... Is India going to be on par with China? Not anytime soon. Uh, is India a rival of China? Yes, and already has been for some time. And it will be a situation that will continue to play out our entire lives. By When I say my entire life, that's not much time. Your entire lives is a lot longer. Uh, and China and India will be rivals perhaps not enemies, perhaps not go to war, but will always be rivals. They are two distinct uh, uh, cultures, two distinct ethnicities, although they're both uh, uh, not homogeneous. They're heterogeneous societies in terms of ethnicities and language. Uh, uh, but just there are two different cultural cores of planet Earth. To be Chinese is what I'm going to talk about next uh, 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 podcast. To live in India is entirely different. They're some of the core cultures of planet Earth. Europe is a core culture of planet Earth. They're very different parts of the planet. And they, I won't say they've had a lot of animosity historically. In fact, they haven't historically because the, I don't know, what's that thing called? That big-ass mountain range where Mount Everest has separated the two cultures historically. But modern technology and communications uh, and transportation have eliminated that barrier to some degree. So they are rivals. They will continue to be rivals. But India is not quite in the category of China yet economically, for sure. Not quite there politically in terms of being a full-fledged uh, world power at that same level. The main rivalry you're going to see with China for the rest of your life is the United States. The United States and China are now vying for, not global supremacy, but for the title of the most powerful entity that affects world events the most. I'm going to go ahead and call it a draw and suggest that both China and the United States will be the two countries who most affect world events for the rest of your life. India will be a rival as well on some issues, but not nearly at the level that the United States and China will be at. Does that make sense? Hope so. Lots more on that too, coming up. Obviously the United States and China have been trading blows ever since the Trump administration took over about trade. Um, I've already now pointed out multiple times that the United States and China are on opposite trajectories. China wants to be a world leader. The United States does not want to any longer be a world leader. Uh, China and the United States are vying for technological supremacy. So the United States for a very long time was unrivaled in terms of all technologies, telecommunications, computers, space, medicine. And the United States, I think very appropriately, is uh, quite worried because China has caught up and may be exceeding them, them, I say them, us, um, the, uh, the China is 
no longer reliant on other countries like the United States to buy stuff from or to get ideas from. China's doing quite well on its own. Thank you very much. I always like to point out that China will be the next country that goes to the moon. China will be China will be the next country that puts a man on the moon. China will start a space colony. That's also going to happen in your lifetime. China's on uh, par, I think, for getting to Mars first. The Chinese government, again, because they're not a democracy, they don't have to deal with elections. They can just say, we are going to put a person on Mars in 2030. And we are going to do everything to make that happen. Uh, and the United States is just simply not in that position because of its government style. And again, I'm okay with that. Because <laughs> the Chinese government can also say, by the way, we don't like John Boyer and his entire family. Go put them in prison or kill them. And that's the way it goes if you live in China. Uh, there's not a lot of recourse to say, well, I didn't do anything. We don't care. It's Chinese government. So it depends on what your priorities are in life. Uh, and I really am anxious to see China do a lot of great things and do great projects because it will be a competitive motivation for the United States and India, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. There was other questions that popped up. Uh, yes, constant questioning. Time is very relevant with me. Thanks very much. Uh, let's see. Uh Pelosco says, regarding Turkey, I'd like to ask you, is Turkey allowed to materialize its neo-Ottoman Empire uh, territorial fantasies against Greece by the American politics? I'm not sure I understand that. Uh, Greece and Turkey are almost uh, in war since summer. Turkey is sending research vessels and drilling in Greek territorial waters. Yes, I talked about that, Luis, last week. Uh, and they're the only nation that doesn't recognize international law. See, oh, no, uh, Pelagos, uh, Pelagos. Uh, there are many countries that do not recognize the international law of the sea. And in fact, the United States of America is the primary one. So it, uh, Turkey's not alone in that. Any country that has aspirations of grabbing other pieces of water does not recognize the international law of the sea. Most countries do, but not all. And to speak to your point of, uh, is Turkey going to be allowed to materialize these claims and grow its neo-Ottoman empire? That remains to be seen. We'll uh, see what the United States is willing to tolerate and the EU is willing to talk, tolerate if they feel that Turkey is becoming too aggressive in Mediterranean waters. You may see a confrontation happen very soon. And we really won't know what everybody's willing to stand up for or stand up against until something happens. My instinct is that if Turkey gets a little too aggressive and starts shooting at ships, there will probably be a collective Western, if not United Nations, movement to try to check their power a little bit. And then we'll just have to see where it goes from there. Someone on YouTube asked, David R. said, were Tibetans forced to go to re-education camps as well? To my knowledge, question from uh, YouTube from, I'm sorry, who? David R. David R. Good question, David. David asks, did the Tibetans experience something like re-education camps, like what's happening currently in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs? Not to my knowledge. Um, there's much fewer, many fewer, much fewer, many fewer uh, Tibetans. I, I, again, I'd have to go check numbers. I want to say two to three million, maybe four or five. It's a huge area, very sparsely populated. Remember that dot density map I showed you like an hour and a half ago? So there's not many Tibetans. Uh, it's They're pretty spread out over a very big area. And with Tibetans, it's been more about 
Well, it's about cultural coherence and saving their culture, but also you're you're morphing in Buddhism in there. So the Dalai Lama is kind of the spiritual leader of a world religion. So he's of significance on a world stage. And so the protests that have occurred in Tibet over time, uh, the Chinese army actually invaded Tibet in 1952. Somebody go spell check me on that. Um, and actually forced the Dalai Lama to flee uh, Tibet to go into Dar es Salaam, India, which has been his home ever since. 1950. I was off by two years. I'm sorry. I overbid. Sorry, I lost the showcase showdown. So 1950, in its efforts, and this is how long ago it started, uh, 1950 is when the Chinese government officially kind of invaded uh, Tibet specifically to arrest the Dalai Lama and be able to control his leadership and his position uh, as a world religious leader. And they have been working for, what, geez, 70 years to make sure that he doesn't get airplay, that he doesn't get street cred. The Chinese government actually has its own Dalai Lama. They decided that they know who the reincarnation of the next Lama is going to be, who's going to get the title of Dalai Lama, head of Buddhism, basically. And they have him, have this person already being trained to be the next leader of Buddhism in some palace somewhere in uh, China proper. So they have never done a full-on re-education situation because of the population numbers themselves, but, but also because this has been happening since 1950. So with the Tibetan situation, it was much more about running out the Dalai Lama and his supporters and then investing uh, and uh, industrializing the Tibetan plateau with Chinese businesses, encouraging movement of Chinese uh, people into, Han Chinese people into Tibet uh, and most of the protests that you've seen or heard about, or if you go Google, have been devout Buddhists or just devout Tibetans who, it's called self-emulate, self-emulate, uh, self I can never pronounce it. Emulate, emulate, it starts with an I, I-M-M-O-L-A-T-E, self-emulation. That's when you catch yourself on fire and kill yourself publicly in protest. That has actually been a big thing. So a lot of Tibetan cultural warriors or Tibetan nationalists, as well as Buddhists, have been jailed, persecuted, tortured, whatever, to renounce or get on board with the Chinese program. And a lot of them have done the self-immolation thing, which usually catches world headlines. And, and not just like super important people, but I remember a spate of like 10 uh, uh, Tibetans uh, self-emulated over the course of a year or two. And as strange as this sounds, it really pisses the Chinese government off. They're like, don't catch yourself on fire. I mean, because it makes them look bad. You have citizens who are so desperate and so angry and so frustrated. They're willing to commit suicide publicly to make a statement. The Chinese government is not even happy about that. Well, I mean, again, if I was the Chinese government, I'd be like, well, you could all kill yourselves. It makes it easier for us. But it's embarrassing for them. And the Chinese government does not like to be embarrassed on the world stage, which is one of the reasons why it also has had a very tactical campaign for 70 years to not have any countries even host the Dalai Lama to speak. Uh, the Chinese government has put pressure, economic business pressure, on other countries to not allow the Dalai Lama to visit, to not give him a microphone. And the latest one was not that long ago, where South Africa denied the Dalai Lama a visa entry 
because they were pressured by the Chinese government. So it's like, wow, that's how Syria and the Dalai Lama is like a 90 year old dude who mostly people think is kind of a cool dude who just talks about world peace and stuff. Uh, but that's not how the Chinese government uh, sees him and his followers. Uh, and by the way, since I know Katie pointed out that we have some Chinese citizens who may be listening to this, I want to educate not Chinese citizens. I'm not telling you what to believe. You believe whatever you've been educated about. But I want the rest of the world to understand that the Chinese government controls the Chinese educational curriculum. And 1.5 billion Han Chinese people think the Dalai Lama is the son of Satan. Uh, they have been educated that way. They've been taught that way. They've been taught the Dalai Lama wants to take over China. The Dalai Lama uh, is uh, straight from hell who eats babies. It's kind of that deep state stuff. What's the crazy one that the Trumpy people like? Um, um, uh, something X. Uh, uh, somebody help me out. What's the huge conspiracy theory right now? It's being banned on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, it has a name. Um, somebody help me out. Damn it. I don't. I try not to follow these things because they're so bizarre. Anyway, the, 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 the Chinese government so despises the Dalai Lama and so... QAnon. 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 So yeah, the Chinese government basically has kind of a QAnon program with the Dalai Lama that nobody outside of China knows about because why would you? You didn't grow up there. You didn't hear these things. You see the Dalai Lama's just a dude who speaks about religion. But uh, 1.5 billion Chinese people have been taught uh, QAnon crazy stuff like, oh, they ate babies and the Chinese government had to go take over Tibet to save themselves from cannibalism. And you're like, okay, I'm not getting in an argument with any Chinese citizen about this, by the way. You are taught certain things. Not the, the rest of the world does not necessarily agree with those certain things. Uh, historians don't agree with those certain things, but that's cool. I'm not trying to debate with you or tell you you're wrong. I just want the rest of the world to understand that the Chinese people, the Han Chinese people, do not like the Dalai Lama. And they do not care about Tibet or Tibetan people because they see that as a possible breakaway province that the Dalai Lama is trying to incite uh, into an independence movement to tear itself away from China proper. That's why if it's true or not. I'm just telling you, that's the why of why the Chinese government hates that guy so much and has quashed Tibetan nationalism so much. And they've basically taken it to the next level with the Uyghur population up in Xinjiang, which, which uh, honestly, it's a little bizarre that the Chinese government is so passionate about um, quelling the Uyghurs because there's not any big famous person that's there's no equivalent to the Dalai Lama uh, in the Uyghurs. It's just a group of people. There's no internationally famous Uyghur who has world recognition. Uh, to my knowledge, there's not been any huge pro-nationalist independence Uyghur movement. If there is, I've never heard of it. I mean, sure, I'm sure some people got together in a basement and talked about it, but it's never really been any significant issue or people would have reported about it. Or we know a little bit about it. But the Chinese government takes these things very seriously and is very proud to hold on to the territory that it currently has at all cost. Uh, do you think China will surpass the U.S. in terms of GDP? Question is from... Uh, P.H. on YouTube. P.H. on YouTube asks... I'm oh, sorry, Pete. Pete. Pete H. on YouTube asks if 
the Chinese GDP will soon surpass the United States GDP? Great question, Pete. And the answer is, some people think it already has. Uh, and everybody else knows it will. How's that for a quick answer? Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, economists say, no, it's already there. They're already so big. It's These numbers are starting to get so big, it's almost hard to measure them anymore with GDP. Because you have to remember, the United States only has 330 million citizens. Maybe it's 340 now, I can't remember. China has 1.5 billion. So you're looking at a country the same size as the United States with four times, if not five times the population. And it's a population of people just like you people in the United States. They got families, they work hard, they get up in the morning, they go to work, they make money, they do this, they they bake bread, they grow food, they're in factories, they're in technology companies. So if you just look numerically and try to boil down how humans behave and how we try to measure things, it's not really hard to understand that China's already bigger GDP than America. And again, I don't know this numerically. I've not done a study. I look at logic. And the Chinese economy is as developed as the United States economy now. And the main difference is they have five times the number of people working. So at some point, you have to understand that, okay, if they're not already five times bigger than the United States in terms of GDP, they soon will be. <laughs> it's just a numbers game. If you have five times as many workers, five times as much work is getting done. You have five times as much productivity and five times many more bricks or toys or, or uh, bottles of beer are being produced. Uh, and China also uh, wasn't as big as the United States GDP, say, 10 years ago because they are mostly an export-focused economy. So they were making stuff to sell to the rest of the world. Uh, and so you're at some level, and they made tons of money doing it. It's one of the reasons China got rich in the last 20 years. They were an export-driven economy. They were making everything, and the world was buying it from them. So money was rolling in. And that's good, okay? All countries want to sell stuff to other countries and make money, have money come in. The difference in China now, 10 or 20 years later, is that China has gotten so rich, and I'm talking about individuals, they've grown a middle class and an upper class. And actually, there's more Chinese millionaires than there's millionaires in the whole rest of the world put together. Period. And there's going to be more Chinese billionaires than there's going to be billionaires in the whole rest of the world put together soon. You just have that kind of engine that's running on all cylinders. It's getting big. But the main difference I just got lost on is that the difference now, 10 years later, 20 years later, is that China has an internal economy now. We call it a domestic economy because there's a middle class and because there's millionaires and because there's even lower class people that have more money than ever. The Chinese people themselves are consuming more stuff than they ever have. That's called a domestic economy. It's why the United States has been rich as shit for 100 years. Because we weren't reliant on, we weren't beholden to the world to sell them stuff. So if the world decides to stop buying stuff, then your country's screwed. If all you do is sell stuff to the world, the United States got rich because we had a domestic economy. People made stuff here and people made enough money making stuff that they could buy stuff. The reason why the United States is the car center of the universe is because the Ford company figured out a way to, we're going to pay our workers who make the cars enough money to be able to afford to buy a car. And so it's a self-perpetuating cycle. 
And the Chinese economy just got to that point in the last decade or two. There's now so many people with so much wealth, including poor people, okay, not just millionaires. If you give poor people more money, they buy more stuff. And so the Chinese now have a domestic economy. So they still export tons of stuff and they're making tons of money, but Chinese people themselves are buying tons of stuff. So the economy just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So sorry for the long answer to what was originally a short answer. Yes, the Chinese GDP is likely already bigger than the United States. And if not, soon will be, soon will be. There's no stopping it. It's impossible. Any other questions or are we done? Last question. I was going to say last question. Uh, it's uh, from CHSH013 on Twitch. Where do you normally watch the news and how do you make sure if the news is correct or not biased? How do you get your news sources? Uh, so someone on Twitch, CHSHX yeah. <laughs> on Twitch, asked where do I get my news sources? How do you uh, ensure they're not biased? Um, uh, that is tricky and it's getting trickier in today's fake news world. And even if you, it's not fake, if you don't like it, you call it fake. So I totally understand for you poor younger generations that are like, where, who the hell do I listen to? Here's the easy answer. You get news from people that report on news professionally and have done it for more than 50 years. Make sure I said that to you again. People that do it for a living and that have done it for at least 50 years. Now, why would I pick that number? You know what? It is a random number. There are some great news sources that just started last year. But you don't know if they have bias. You don't know who's paying their bills. I like Vice News. I think Vice News is quite great. They've only been around 10 years. Know, maybe 15 but you need independent reporting and more important than that, because you can't really sit down and go research every news source on planet earth to see if they, you know, are, are independent. I'm fine with biased news sources. In fact, every news source is biased. I say they have to have a 50 year record because they have a body of work you can examine and you know their bias. And if they've been around for 50 years or longer, they do it professionally. They do it for a living. And again, I know some people are be like, well, Fox News has been around 50 years and they're crazy. And it's like, sure. But the people who watch Fox News think that CNN is crazy. And people at CNN think that Deutsche Welle in Germany is crazy. So it's not about that you're going to get an unbiased news source. I'm only suggesting go with credible long-term news sources so that you can identify the bias. We all know the bias of Fox News. We all know the bias of CNN. Actually, I would even say that I know the bias of NPR. NPR people are like, no, NPR is the good one. They're the good people, right? No. They, yes, they're all good, but they all have, they all make decisions about what to report and how to report it, even NPR. So everybody has a bias. Therefore, watch sources that have been, uh, uh, take your news from sources that have been around long enough that you know what the bias is and you can factor that into your brain. And I don't ever listen to just one single news. If only a, a single news source is reporting some radical story, that in itself tells you it's bullshit. If, not, if everyone else is not reporting on it, it didn't happen. 
We live in the most connected, hyper-connected world in human history. There is no news source, there is no scenario where a Fox News reporter was in Kazakhstan and saw something no one else saw. That is literally impossible. So if you hear a news story that's too crazy to be true and only one news source is reporting it, it is too crazy to be true. So longevity, understanding the news source's bias and accepting it and how, accepting it means that you understand where they're coming from so you know what pieces of it to take. You know they have a political agenda to pitch a story in a certain way, but that doesn't mean the facts they're reporting are wrong. Okay? And again, when you culminate enough of those sources, I read a single news story from five or six different news sources. Because if five or six different news sources that I know have different ideologies are all reporting the same facts, then I know those facts are true. So if Fox News is reporting the same news story that NPR is, that Dutch Vail is, that the BBC is, and they're all saying the same facts, now I have a high degree of confidence those facts are actually facts. Does that make sense? That's how I do it. It's how I've done it for years. And again, I don't mean to dismiss newer news sources out there. Uh, however, you if you want to pick up a new news source, um, follow them as you're following other news sources to see how they're reporting the same and how they report differently from the other longer serviced news sources. That's it. That's how I do it. There are several of the news sources out there that I love that are quite new, but they're hustling. And, and, and you know, you just get a sense of it that, oh no, these guys are on the ground. That's the other thing, by the way. Do not ever listen to news sources where they don't have somebody on the ground. Because if you do not have somebody there, what the hell do you know? All you're doing is repeating shit that you heard from someplace else. And by the way, I don't, I don't believe in uh, any of the government news sources worldwide. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a U.S. government-sponsored newspaper. I really, I'm not interested in what you have to say because I already know you're so biased to report things that make your government look good that it's of no value. And again, back to China. We're talking about China. The Chinese control all of the Chinese government news sources. All of them. All news sources in China are government-controlled. So at some point, you just have to understand that and be like, Okay, so nothing they say will ever be critical of the government. Nothing they say will ever, ever actually report a fact if it makes the Chinese government look bad. They just won't. So you have to res you have to rely on other news sources to kind of figure out what the hell's going on like in a place like China. Maybe Japanese news is less. <laughs> Japanese news sources are as biased as yeah. Chinese, as biased as Korean, as biased as Mexican. You know, it, it is what it is. Humans are just humans. We're fallible, hairless mammals. Well, China's going to paint themselves in a corner. Uh, autocratic regimes, authoritarian regimes like China and, and North Korea and, and others. China has been opening up, and China does have reporters from other countries who are in there. They just ran out a bunch of Australian reporters, by the way, because they were pissed off at Australia. So that becomes problematic, and China will paint itself in a corner. If it tries to control too much, then you start to lose credibility. And as a country or a government, you may say, I don't give a shit if anybody thinks we're credible. We're China. We're the biggest country on planet Earth. Why the hell do I care if 
anybody has credibility in what we say. Well, here's why. Because investors don't like non-credible sources. Businesses do not like to invest in countries that they don't know what the hell's going on or what the truth is. So at some point, at some level, even the Chinese government or the North Korean government or any government, they want people to actually believe what they say. And so they have to let other reporters in if they're doing, I think, a sensible thing. They have to let other reporters in. They have to have some verification of things that are going on so that investors and businesses and other governments can rely that they're telling the truth, at least some of the time. I didn't even talk about politics. Investors do not invest in countries where they don't know what the hell's going on. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Africa is uh, not as developed because you know multi-billion dollar corporations are not going to go start a Walmart super center in the middle of Nigeria if they have no confidence that the place won't be robbed and burnt to the ground or uh, uh, more likely uh, have to pay government officials bribes in order to operate. They just won't do it. They won't do it. So that's true everywhere. Think about yourself. What would you do with your money? Would you go start a company in a country that says, well, we control the news, so we're going to tell you what's going on. Hell no, you're not going to. Where the hell is my money going? So that's just common sense with business. But even with politics, if the Chinese government kicks out all reporters, how do you have a negotiation over nuclear arms with them? Or, or how do you... How do you have a negotiation over a treaty? You have no idea. Their word doesn't mean anything because they're just making it up. So you have to have that credibility, which is why you do allow for some freedom of press, even in, or at least a little bit of freedom of press, uh, in autocratic or authoritarian regimes. That's just the way that I understand the world. I could be wrong. Part of the reason, back to uh, our lecture from last week, even though we're now uh, two hours over time, uh, part of my problem with, current just personal problem with Turkey right now and Recep Erdogan's government is that they used to be open and they used to be a, um, a democracy and they used to be part of a world that we trusted what the government said and we trusted the news sources and I, I could look at something that the Turkish government said you know with a grain of salt and be like okay that's kind of what's going on or I could listen to a Turkish news source and be like okay I know what's kind of going on in Turkey because I read several different Turkish news sources and that day's gone now. I mean, it, it, the government has taken over. And you're like, oh, man, you... Okay. I mean, I guess the Turkish government wants to do what it wants to do, but it's lost its credibility with me. Just, again, this, I said this is a personal uh, a statement. I love Turkey. I want to visit Turkey. I know the Turkish people are great. But now I've lost confidence of what the hell's going on there because the government controls everything, and they're only going to report stuff that they want you to hear. And it's like, well... All righty. I'm sure it's all on the up and up. <laughs> Again, to close, I'm not making fun of the Chinese government. I'm not making fun of the Turkish government. I'm not sure I would listen to any government who's reporting on themselves. It just, we're humans. You can't do it that way. You have to have a, a credible outside sources tell you what's going on. Otherwise, the story doesn't mean very much. Sorry for that long-ass answer for a short question. Okay. All right. Anything else? We all good? Now that I said, I swore I was going to go a half hour for this intro. So we talk about what tomorrow we're talking about, what time, Same time. 
Same plaid time, same plaid channel tomorrow at 8. I will once again attempt to get through 5,000 years of Chinese history. Just the highlights so that you understand some of the current Chinese government's claims on certain areas, particularly Taiwan. I would like to get to Taiwan tomorrow because that issue is getting hot and it's going to get hotter and it will come to a boiling point in your lifetime. I might not live to see it, but your lifetime, something will happen and it might even involve the United States of America. So that's what we'll talk about tomorrow. Uh, and so we'll see you then. Thank you all so much for hanging out another two hours. How did this happen? I swore it was going to be short tonight. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> yes, please ask questions as you go. I know some people are like, no, just give me the lecture. I'll try to, I try to fine tune, walk that tightrope between the two camps of just lecture versus Q&A. Uh, but that's one of the, great fun and great powers of the modern technological world is that we can interact uh, on real time instantaneous so we'll talk about that tomorrow thank you all so much for tuning in i uh, hope you like this stuff if you do and you have suggestions for other podcasts let me know I'm trying to make this a regular thing if i can just stay on my feet long enough and live long enough to do, produce more stuff but for now have a great night we'll see you in less than 24 hours and as always party on <laughs>